Uh, as you know, we're continuing our series on the five on the five solas of the Reformation. We learned so far that Scripture alone is the teaching that the Scriptures contain all that is necessary for salvation and proper living before God. We learned that faith alone is the teaching that faith alone saves a person when he places his faith and trust in the sacrificial work of Christ. And grace alone is the teaching that God pardons believers without any merit of their own based solely on the sacrificial work of Christ. Today we're going to learn about solus Christus, Christ alone. What does Christ alone mean? Christ alone is the teaching that one can only obtain salvation through Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross and that salvation cannot be earned by any human effort. It emphasizes that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only necessary for salvation, but sufficient to save to the uttermost. You see, salvation is monergistic. That means that God alone is the one who saves. It means that salvation is the work of God alone from first to last. He gives ears to hear and eyes to see. One scholar wrote, It is God alone who gives illumination and understanding of his word that we might believe. It is God who raises us from the dead, who circumcises the heart, unplugs our ears. It is God alone who can give us a new sense that we may, at last, have the moral capacity to behold his beauty and unsurpassed excellency. And the preaching of the gospel is the means by which this happens. Martin Luther once stated, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me in the context of salvation. So turn with me, if you would, please, to the book of Ephesians. Just to give you a brief historical background here, the book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul while he was imprisoned in Rome. Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia at the time of his writing. And the people there had a fascination with the occult and with magic. You could read that in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was also the center of worship for the false god Diana, or as scripture calls it, Artemis. And as a matter of fact, the temple of Artemis was in Ephesus and is known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And you could pull that up and see some incredible pictures of what the temple of Artemis looked like way back then. So turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is addressing the Ephesian church here, and he says, starting in verse 1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today in the name above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say thank you for your great love. Thank you that in your love, you predestined the elect to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in in accordance with your pleasure and will. As we study your word today, Lord, we ask that your spirit would help us to understand and comprehend what you have written. May we be challenged, convicted, and encouraged by your word this morning. And may you grant salvation to anyone here who has never repented and entrusted their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The title today is quite simple, Christ Alone. The first point of the sermon focuses on verses 1 through 3, and it's the walking dead. The walking dead. Paul writes, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What we see here is that by nature, mankind is spiritually dead, transgressors of the law of God and under the rule of Satan. I think it's important to understand the state of man prior to his salvation. Every single human being born in this world, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the only exception, he is the God-man, Every single person enter this world spiritually dead. Man does not become spiritually dead because he sins. He is spiritually dead because by nature he is sinful. Our condition has nothing to do with the way we live. It has to do with the fact that we are dead without Christ, even though our hearts are physically beating. And because we're dead to God, we're dead to spiritual life. That means that we are dead to truth. We are dead to righteousness. We are dead to true inner peace and ultimately any other good thing. And because we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we cannot seek after God apart from being drawn by the Lord. Jesus said in John 6, 44, no man can come to me unless he is drawn by the father. So it is theologically accurate to say that on his own, man cannot seek God for salvation apart from being drawn by the Father. This implies that no human being, past, present, or future, on his own, has the moral and spiritual ability to come to Christ unless the Father draws him. Psalm Psalm 10 verse 4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. All his thoughts are, 
there is no God. Because man is prideful, because he wants to be the controller of his own destiny, he does not seek after God. The unregenerate man is very happy enjoying the sinful pleasures of the world. His thoughts are consumed with the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes. As Romans 8, 7 says, the unregenerate man is governed by the flesh and hostile to God and cannot submit to God's law. Paul says in Romans 3, 10 through 12, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Here we see that Paul is focusing on the sin of every single human being that has ever lived and ever will live on this earth. No man can on his own seek after God for eternal life with Christ or do any good work that would merit salvation because the human race without Christ has no inclination toward God or ability to please him. Michael Horton once wrote, we cannot find God for the same reason that a thief cannot find a police officer. Why? What's a thief doing? He's running away from a cop. He doesn't want to get caught. He's not looking to say hello to a police officer as he is a television that he just stole under his arm. And what's so sad about the scriptures not being accessible to the common people for the most part prior to the Reformation is that the God of this age, Satan himself, was using the Roman Catholic Church to blind the minds of the people so they could not see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So unbelievers who are already dead in their trespasses and sins and haters of light and lovers of darkness were being veiled from the gospel by Satan's instruments, the Roman church. It's absolutely tragic. Think of all the people back then and even today who are destitute of a life that is devoted to God because of their trespasses and sins. They've been blinded by the God of this world. They are dead to God and slayed by the evil one who is constantly trying to thwart the gospel from going forth. They're all around us, brothers and sisters. The walking dead. You don't have to watch TV shows about zombies to experience the walking dead in your own life. They're here. They're in our families. They're in our banks. They're in our grocery stores. They live next door to us. They're on our college campuses. They're in our homeschool co-ops. They're among us. There is no way they can escape their corruption apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are not they are spiritually discerned. Without the Spirit of God, the unbeliever has no means or desire to understand the spiritual nature of God's word. R.C. Sproul once said, Fallen man has the natural ability to make choices, but lacks the moral ability to make godly choices. 
Because he's dead. He's destitute of a life that recognizes and is devoted to God because of his heart. His heart is wicked and continues to act out his wickedness habitually as a way of living. A dead man cannot choose. He can't. He's dead. He can't make decisions. He's dead. Let's look in verse 3. Paul says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now remember that Paul is addressing the church of Ephesus here. The church in Ephesus was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And he's stating that not only are the Gentiles, everyone who's not a Jew, dead in their trespasses and sins, but so are Jews. And he himself was once in that state. He includes himself in this. The religiosity of the Jew could not save him. His following rules and traditions of men could not save him. No matter what a Jew did, no matter what they tried to do to gain favor with God, could in no way take away the fact that his entire being was polluted by sin. And the same goes for the Gentile. Their sinful cravings dictated and demanded of them what they should do, when they should do it, and how it should be done. They are slaves to sin. When I was a drug and alcohol counselor, one of my clients said, I can't stop doing it. I said, no, you can't. He goes, but I'm trying. That's why I'm here. I'm saying, and I said, the only way you're going to stop is Jesus. He's the only way you take Jesus out of the equation. And you're not, you're going to go back into it. You try to stop in your own strength. You try to stop in your own flesh and you will go right back down into the pit. It's by the grace of God and his sustaining grace that keeps us going. Because the natural man is altogether at the mercy of the tyrant self and its rash impulses. They say, Brother John, I, I want to have, I want to do drugs so bad. Or, or they'd contact me after they've, they left the program and they would say, I'm, I'm, I'm high again. Why? I, I just can't stop. I said, because you're at the, you are at the mercy of your sin. You're a slave to sin and it's got a hold on you, a grip. Well, how can I stop? Will the program stop me? No, Jesus will stop you. Cry out to God. Jesus can stop you. Therefore, what is God's posture toward unbelievers in this context, in this verse? God's wrath is upon them. That was all of us. John 3.35 states, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Wrath is the revelation of God's righteousness that is revealed from heaven. It shows us that God is never neutral toward sin, that he is active toward sin. So all men prior to saving faith carry upon themselves the wrath of God. They're without God without hope, awaiting the final judgment where one day, if conversion does not take place prior, they will be cast into hell forever. But, in his great love for the elect, 
God displayed his love for us at Calvary by offering up his son as the perfect and only sacrifice for our sins. And God the son displayed his love for us at Calvary by taking upon himself the wrath of God on our behalf, thus removing the punishment due to us because of our sin. I was brought up Roman Catholic. I was taught that taking communion was part of God's sacrifice, the Christ sacrifice. He was being sacrificed every Sunday. But his sacrifice was once and for all. When I started reading the scriptures for myself, I felt like I was sold a bag of goods. I felt cheated. I felt like I was suckered into this. I remember going to Quebec with my family. And I remember just like Luther saw, I had to climb stairs on my knees to get to the top of some kind of shrine. Thinking God would have some sort of favor with, I would have some favor with God and he'd be pleased with me. And I got up there and I was like, that was stupid. I have really sore knees. I was like six years old and I couldn't get it. And they're like, oh, God saw what you did. And he's so happy with you. I was a child of wrath. Look at verses four through seven, the good news. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Point number two, alive in Christ. Whereas the first three verses paint a very dismal picture for the unbeliever, wrath for the unsaved, Paul now sets God's gracious acceptance of man in Christ and in Christ alone. God is saying through Paul that every man is unworthy of God's love, but that God has a deep and constant love toward unworthy sinners. I don't deserve his love, but he has love for me. And that God's mercy for his helpless enemies flows from his own loving heart. Not from anything man can have, can do or could have done to deserve his love. The word mercy here means an outward manifestation of pity. So God showed pity on us by giving us his son. He made a way for us to be reconciled to him. Ephesians chapter 2 later on says that Christ through the cross killed hostility between God and man and brought about reconciliation between the creator and his creation. What a God. What a savior. You know something though? The problem of reconciliation is not on the Lord's side. It's on ours because we in our deadness are running away from God, just as Adam and Eve ran away from him in the garden. We see here that God is the one taking initiative in providing 
the power of salvation. Because of his great love for us and his abounding mercy, he made a way for us to be reconciled. In his love, he reached out to vile, depraved, rebellious human beings and offered salvation to us. And when he blessed us with the gifts of faith and the gifts of repentance, we became alive in Christ. That is what salvation does. It, it, it makes dead men alive. We're no longer alienated from God. We now have union with him because of the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And only because of the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. It is by the grace of God that salvation takes place. You see, mercy pities. Grace pardons. But it does more than that. It saves all the way. Delivering man from the greatest woe. Eternal damnation. And bestowing upon him the greatest blessing. Everlasting life with God forever. And he does this. For his glory alone. God's purpose for saving his people reaches far beyond man. It's for his own glory and is his own chief aim. Paul wrote to the Romans and he said in chapter 11, verse 32, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. All things. Say all, including salvation. All things are from God and through God and for God. His blessing us with salvation through Christ alone brings him great honor. It brings him praise. It brings him glory forever and ever. And it's for that reason that he displays his grace in all of its matchless splendor and transforming power. You know, brothers and sisters, God is fundamentally kind, merciful, and loving. His love reaches out to us and offers salvation through Christ, his son. He offers forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to the unbeliever through Christ, his son, and only through Christ, his son. And when we become alive in Christ, We become sensitive to God and to the things of God. Romans 6, 4 says that when we now walk in the newness of life, we can now understand spiritual truth and desire spiritual things. We now seek after godly things as Christians, whereas prior to salvation, we sought to satisfy the flesh. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. Point number three, salvation in Christ alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Grace. 
grace. The sovereign work by which God speaks to the spiritually dead corpse and says, Lazarus, come out. John Reyes, come forth and we're brought into being spiritually. A dead man cannot raise himself from the dead. Grace is at once the objective, operative, and instrumental cause of the new birth. And it is by grace that we have been saved from God's wrath at the final judgment. Amen. Romans 5, 9 states, Since then, therefore, we have now been justified by the blood of Jesus. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So salvation by grace through faith is a gift of God. It is from him given to us because of what our Lord Jesus did for us on Calvary. And God says here through Paul that this gift is not a result of our own works so that we cannot boast. Paul excludes every possibility of self-achievement salvation here. But to the person who does not have a Bible, who's not allowed to read the scriptures for himself, he has no idea of this verse. And so he's going to climb up steps on his knees. He's going to go to penance. He's going to take communion, thinking that he's doing a, a service to God by being faithful. He's going to do everything he can to try to please God by his own works. But if salvation were through our own works and our own merit, then we would get the glory for it. We can boast. See what I did? I did this for God. And he's going to get me to heaven because I did this. But God wants to be acknowledged for all that he has done. And for all that he is. God does all of it. Not just part of it. Any kind of self-effort in salvation is comprehensively ruled out here. In Ephesians chapter 2. Romans 3.20 states, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Being a good person does not justify me before God. No one will be justified or declared righteous by God by trying to be good. That is the heresy the Roman Catholic Church enforced on the people prior to the Reformation. The Roman Church said that by, by paying to see relics, such as the supposed bones of the apostles or supposed pieces of wood of the cross, they were going to be pleasing God. Yet the Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. The Roman church said that with purchasing of indulgences, which were certificates signed by the Pope, who said he had the authority to pardon per people's sins, that doing that would guarantee them a place in heaven. The Bible says that salvation is accomplished through Christ's atoning work. 
The Catholic Church said that if you pray to the saints, you would obtain mercy from God. The Bible says there is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. Brothers and sisters, religious systems cannot save you. Calvinism cannot save you. Becoming a member of a local church will not save you. Being water baptized, thinking that's going to save you, is not going to save you. Feeding the hungry or tending to the poor does not save a person from the fires of hell. Being a nice or good person does not get someone to heaven. You know, it was crazy as a kid growing up, the things I would think as a Catholic, as a little boy. I used to think that murderers automatically went to hell. You murder someone, you there's no hope for you're going to hell. And anyone who is murdered gets a free ticket to heaven because they were a victim. That's what I thought. I don't I don't know if someone taught me that or if it's just what I thought. And yet it's so interesting because you know what? Not all murderers go to hell. If you repent and put your trust in Christ, you go to heaven. Paul, Saul was a murderer. He's in heaven. And all not all victims of murder go to heaven. Hell is filled with people who've been murdered. Salvation is found in no one else but the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Christ alone. Given who he is and what he has done for us as our representative and substitute, there is nothing more that we can do to add to his work. Christ's work is sufficient in its accomplishment and by faith alone we are declared righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Christ alone saves. We are saved solely by his merits. Jesus paid for our sin finally, definitely, and completely and there's nothing we can do to add to it. Don't try. And anyone or anything that teaches that doing good works for God will get us into heaven is either deceived or is a deceiver or both and is being used by the enemy of the gospel, Satan himself. We owe our salvation entirely to the undeserved favor of God. He has done it. He's done it all. And the only one who is allowed to boast about it is God. If salvation is from God, through God, and for God's glory, then boasting for us is altogether out of place. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 27, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. And when we do boast, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 31, let us boast in the Lord and what he has done to save us. 
It is about God saving us from sin and judgment through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the only reason we should boast. Because of what God has done. So what about good works? Good works do not get us into heaven. Salvation produces in us good works. Good works are a fruit of salvation. After conversion, the Holy Spirit empowers us to do good works. And you know what? Even the good that we do now for God has its source in God. And therefore, we can't even boast about those good works. Because if it wasn't for Christ and what he did for us, we would not be able to do any good works at all. So when someone says, wow, I really think what you're doing for God is awesome, point them to Jesus. Say it's only because of God's grace what God has done for me. And he enables me by grace to do these things. And he gets the glory out of it. Worship team, if you would come up. The heart of the gospel is not about us. The heart of the gospel is that Christ came for us to do for us what religious institutions cannot do. He came to do what we in ourselves could not and would not do. He obeyed. He was crucified. He was raised. He ascended into heaven and is returning. For anyone here who is not a believer, Jesus is the only way to be saved. He is the door to eternal life. And I pray today that God himself will bless you, unbeliever, with the gifts of repentance and faith and that you would turn from your sin. That your spiritual carcass would be resurrected. And that you would put your hope and trust in Christ alone for salvation. And live a life that would give God and bring God glory. Let's stand. Thank you so much, Lord. John, thank you so much for your message. And it was a phrase, you guys will probably remember it in the midst of the message, but mercy pities, grace pardons. Wasn't that great? God took pity on us. And he didn't just have pity, but he did something about it.
He sent his own son. Grace personified Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross for our sins and rise again from the dead so that we might experience God's pity, but also his pardon. And brothers and sisters, he's been so good to us, hasn't he? To pity us as he has. And I felt just in the Lord that the Lord wanted to encourage you, beloved, those of you who have trusted in Christ. The pity of the Lord was upon you before you were saved, but he also takes pity upon you now with the struggles of your life and the things that you're facing right now. His pity toward you and his love towards you is filled with sympathy and compassion for all that you're facing. And the Lord wants to remind you of that. And he also wants to remind you of pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, that is yours because of Christ alone. Amen. Amen. Go forth and enjoy the salvation of the Lord in Christ alone today. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.